that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to your Wednesday Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Maurice. It's Buckeye Rants here on Buckeye Talk. I've been saving these up. I didn't even ask for new ones this week. Obviously, an off week for Ohio State this week. We have a bunch of good podcasts lined up. Thursday, we're going to do midseason Ohio State awards. Saturday, we're going to re-rank all the best players on the team. Friday, Tishu and I will be here to set up the big games for this week that don't involve Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan. Among those games, we'll make our picks as usual. But I have these rants saved that are a lot of big picture things that I wasn't able to get to the past couple weeks. I've been holding on to. We're going to talk about SEC bias. We're going to talk about whether the Big Ten overall is good or bad. That'll be at the end of the pod. We'll talk Ohio State corners, Ohio State offensive line, Dewan Jones, Ohio State receivers. Um, but we're going to start with one that I have been saving. And it's very interesting. And it is a theory from Evan in Chicago. And it's well explained. And I did a little research on it. I sent this text last year during Mount Buckmore, and I really do think this merits a discussion on Buckeye Talk, given what's transpired with Jackson Smith and the Jigba this season. Is there a program that has been more snake-bitten with bad luck to generational players than Ohio State? Literally every position, there is a prime example. Quarterback. The Buckeyes lose Terrell Pryor before his senior year to Tackgate, and a national title season is derailed. Braxton Miller then also loses his senior season. Running back, Beanie Wells. Breaks his foot in the opener of a Heisman campaign season. Keith Byers similarly injured his foot in preseason practice after finishing as the Heisman runner-up the prior season. Defensive end. Chase Young, his Heisman campaign was thwarted due to a two-game suspension. And Nick Bosa, that duo with Chase Young never materialized because Bosa missed the 2018 season after two stellar games. And now receiver Chris Carter. Previously set the standard, missing his entire last year at Ohio State because of a suspension. Now JSN, who at best is going to have a Heisman season thwarted before it could even begin, and at worst could have a lingering issue that impacts Ohio State's ability to chase its ultimate goal. I mean, what's up with this? Well said, Evan in Chicago. I don't certainly have the context to know how this compares to other programs, but I would say there are probably 10, I think generational is not a wrong word to use here, but 10 generational Ohio State players who have had a key season either completely missed or shortened or interrupted by either suspension or injury in the last 40 years. And it does start, we'll run through it all, and Evan gave great context, but you know, I think a lot of you guys know this stuff. But if there's some youngsters out there, right? We got like to do the history lesson every now and then. And you start with Keith Byers. Misses the 1985 season. And this is after he maybe should have won the Heisman in 1984. Sort of had it um, ripped away from him by Doug Flutie right at the end of that season. The miracle pass. Keith Byers put up huge numbers. 1985 breaks his foot in the preseason. Misses the first five games. Comes back. Hurt his foot again in the second game. Misses the rest of the regular season, tries to play in the bowl game, hurts the foot again. He winds up all-time in Ohio State history. He is eighth all-time in Ohio State rushing yards with 3,200. He should be second. If he had a normal senior year, he'd have probably 4,500 yards. Say, I mean, he had 17-something his junior year. If he had like 13-something at least his senior year, 
He'd be second. J.K. Dobbins is second in Ohio State history with 4,459 rushing yards. Archie Griffin's first, 5,589. I, I don't know that anybody's ever going to beat Archie um, with how it works now. Guys leave for the league early. But Keith Byers should have 45, 46, 4,700. He'd be second all time. And he might have won the Heisman. Back, he might have come back in 85 and won the Heisman. So, like, that is that is the beginning of that's a huge loss, like a broken foot after a second place Heisman finish. And the guy was coming back, and we know it certainly had an effect on Keith Byers's NFL career, which was good, but again, affected by the foot. So, that's the first one. Second, then, is Chris Carter, who maybe should be the all time Big Ten leader in receiving yards and is not. He had 69 catches for 1,127 yards. In 1986, he left Ohio State as Ohio State's all-time leader in catches, receiving touchdowns, and receiving yards, but he lost the entire 1987 season because he signed with an agent and was suspended for that a whole year. He has 2,725 receiving yards at Ohio State. That's fourth all-time. Michael Jenkins is first, 2,898. Chris Carter should be like 3,700 something, right? Give him another thousand yards. If he would, the Big Ten record for receiving yards in a season, excuse me, for all time career receiving yards in Big Ten history is 3,788. So if, if Chris Carter had a, had 1,100 receiving yards, which he had the year before, he'd be the Big Ten's all time leading receiver still right now. And by the way, in 1987, when when Chris Carter missed it again, he had 1,127 receiving yards in 86. Tim Brown from Notre Dame becomes the second receiver ever to win the Heisman in 87. He had 846 receiving yards. 39 catches, 846. 34 carries for 144. Plus, he had more than 900 return yards, including three punt return touchdowns. That's a big deal. No, it's not. It wasn't 900 return yards. He had 990 yards from scrimmage total. Chris Carter would have had more than that just receiving. He then had a bunch of return yards, including three punt return touchdowns. So Brown won it as a receiver slash return guy. Chris Carter, maybe, again, he built the case in 86. If he's back in 87, Chris Carter would have had a chance to win the Heisman. Would have had a chance. Because a guy at his position with worse receiving stats won it that year in 87. So that's a big one. Those are two big ones to start the list. I'm not sure that you could I, you could find great programs who don't have anything as devastating as Keith Byers and Chris Carter two years apart. Byers missed almost all of 85. Carter missed all of 87. Poor Earl, man. Right? 9-3 and three Earl. He goes 9-3 and three without Byers in 85. Who knows what they would have done with him. He goes 6-4-1 without Carter in 87. Gets fired. Think about Earl Bruce, man. I mean, you guys know this, but it's just a reminder. So those are the first two. Third, Claret. You get one year out of Maurice Claret. And again, this is like self-inflicted and he wanted to go pro. But the idea that that is an all-time great running back in Ohio State history who helped lead Ohio State to a national title in 2002, and that was it. You know, in in more typical circumstances, you would you would have gotten 03 and 04 with Maurice Claret. And you didn't. So that's the third guy. Then Beanie Wells in 08. Hurts his foot in week one. Misses the second, third, and fourth games of the season. Winds up with 1,197 rushing yards that year. That's 30th in the country. If he had played all 13 games and hit his average per game, he would have had more than 1,500 rushing yards and been fifth in the country. 
Probably not a Heisman year the way it works out. There are a bunch of good quarterbacks that year, Tebow, Sam Bradford, guys like that. But clearly, they I can remember being at the USC game, out at USC. Is Beanie going to play? Is Beanie going to play? We're at the walkthrough the day before. It was such a big deal. Did not play. They lose 35-3. to Completely changes that season, right? They, they bench Todd Beckman, move on to Terrell Pryor. If Beanie would have played, I, they weren't going to beat USC that day. But the season could have gone a little differently. He was still really good, and he was still a first-round pick and then had bad injury luck in the NFL. He was still really good that year, but it kept him from his ceiling of what would three more games have done for him. So certainly not as devastating as Byers and Carter, but still an impact. Then you lose Terrell Pryor's senior year in 2011. Again, self-inflicted. Suspended, was going to be suspended, decided to turn pro, went in the supplemental draft. You don't get a senior year of Terrell Pryor and what that would have looked like. And then he would have been a senior when Braxton Miller was a freshman and he could have had a passing of the torch. Braxton Miller could have been in the quarterback room with Terrell Pryor. Instead, Braxton Miller gets thrown in in 2011. Then in 2014, Braxton hurts his shoulder in preseason camp. He's out for 2014. Now, of course, Ohio State recovers and goes on, but you he never plays quarterback again. So you got... Half a year of Braxton Miller in 2011. Then you got him in 2012 and 2013. Undefeated both of those regular seasons. Unbelievable player. But you don't get that final year you thought you were going to get from Braxton Miller. It kind of worked out. But it, you still were deprived of something. JT Barrett then, the end of 2014, he gets hurt. Doesn't get to play in the playoffs. But also, we see how that worked out for Ohio State. But again, the JT Barrett, I'm not really counting that. So that's still a little one. But Byers, Carter, Claret, Beanie Wells, Pryor, Braxton Miller, that's six. Nick Bosa is seven. 2018 plays two and a half games, has the, uh, the abdominal injury, is out for the rest of the year. We don't know what that would have looked like. We don't know what that would have looked like. 2019, Chase Young misses two games in the midst of a Heisman campaign. He finishes that season with 16 and a half sacks, the most in Ohio State history, the Big Ten record is 22 sacks in a season. Would he have gotten five and a half more sacks in the two games that he missed? I don't know. He did have a four-sack game that year. It wouldn't have been impossible. He still made it to New York. He wasn't going to beat Joe Burrow for the Heisman that year. So it wasn't devastating, but it was just two chances that you lost to see Chase Young do his job. And guess what? He's pretty good at his job. And actually, I guess it is only nine devastating ones. JT is 10. Byers, one. Carter, two. Claret, three. Beanie Wells, four. Terrell Pryor, five. Braxton Miller, six. Nick Bosa, seven. Chase Young, eight. And now Jackson Smith and Jigba. And I asked Ryan Day this last week. Like, doesn't it just kind of stink? You just want to see greatness. And the thing is, a lot of these guys, we saw Byers be great. But you would have stacked it, right? It's not that it's not that you didn't get to see the best of these guys. It's that you didn't get to see as much of their best. And how much higher... Could their peaks have been? Chris Carter is still an all-time Ohio State legend, but my gosh, how much more was out there for him? So it's it's not talent denied. It's it's almost that bonus year. Again, like any more, you don't get those bonus years from these guys anyway, right? Because they go to the league. So I, I, I do think that's a strong list of nine that you're losing most of a year for buyers, a whole year for Carter, a whole year for Claret. Three games for Beanie Wells, a whole year for Pryor, a whole year for Braxton Miller, most of a year for Nick Bosa, two games for Chase Young, and now half a year for Jackson Smith and Jigba. That's a lot of talent, man. Woo! That is a lot of talent. And I, I just don't know that you would find many programs 
that could have a list like that. So I don't know. Is that a great way to start this podcast and make everybody feel great about Ohio State football? Are you lamenting the things that you missed out on? But guess what? You've still seen a lot of great stuff, right? Think of all the great players that you didn't miss out on. You didn't miss out on Troy Smith, right? You got the full Troy Smith. You got the full Ted Ginn Jr., right? Other than the national title game. You know, you got you got the full experience of of Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott and guys like that. So it's all good. Got the full Justin Fields other than the pandemic. So it's all good. Quick break. Wanted to start off with that. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the state of college football next on Buckeye Talk Rants. Welcome back. If you want to be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315, you get to send in rants like this. A lot of surveys we're doing this week, really getting the people involved. Uh, it's fun. You get some information. You get to give us feedback, um, but you, you get to ask us questions. We did a Q&A on the postgame pod last week, so we'd love to have you. Two-week free trial, 614-350-3315. All right, state of college football from the 518. This is more a take than a rant. I love the Buckeyes in college football, but the sport is not in a good place. The gap between the top five to eight teams and the rest of the sport is growing rapidly. Not that long ago, the Wisconsin game was interesting. Wisconsin now feels closer to Northwestern than Ohio State. I know Ohio State didn't blow the doors off Notre Dame, but this season is not interesting. Ohio State will probably beat um, other teams by 14 to 17 points, even Penn State, I think they're saying. The game with Michigan is always interesting, but two semi-interesting games does not a good season make. And then this is a little bit lumped in with that. Another one from the 513. I'm not sure if it has always been this way or if I'm just noticing it. I found myself getting more and more excited for Sundays than Saturdays these days. The NFL has a level playing field and a better structure that makes each game appealing and important. How close do you think the NCAA and ADs um, are to forming a minor league to keep each week more relevant? That's Andy from the 513. So both of those... I know what you're saying. First of all, I think it's not as applicable this year because I actually think it's pretty interesting this year. It feels like there's not a super team, frankly. And we've talked about it. If there is one, it might be Ohio State. But you guys know it. You know, there's still enough like, well, you know, Ohio State's really good. But, you know, are you exactly sure of this kind of stuff? So Bama, Georgia, Clemson, USC, Oklahoma State, Michigan, Penn State, Tennessee, like, I think there's a pretty good group of like eight to nine teams this year. And when you say the top three or four have separated, we know that's Alabama. And it's really Alabama first has separated the most. And then Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, right? And then the ideas of Sundays are better than Saturdays. Um, Ohio State has always been boring good. So if the, the, the there's an imbalance in college football or that sometimes Saturdays can be an obvious Ohio State win, like that is not new. The Jim Tressel era, and again, I started in 05, was filled with boring good Saturdays. And I, well, I've said that a million times. Like, just because you're really good doesn't always mean you're exciting. And when you beat, you know, Indiana or Northwestern or a MAC team or Rutgers or whatever, and you think Ohio State should win by 50 and Ohio State wins by 24, then you wind up talking about a very convincing win, but is it not good enough? And that's the world that Ohio State lives in. So, I mean, 2019 was a lot of that. It was amazing that Justin Fields and Ryan Day went undefeated in the regular season in year one, but they played a lot of bad teams, man. So it doesn't take away from your point, but it's also not new. Now, it's going to get better. The 12-team playoffs going to make this better. So we've had the discussion of is, is the Ohio State regular season going to suffer in a 12-team playoff because Ohio State's going to make it every year. Ohio State could lose two games and make a 12-team playoff. 
I think there's a case some years they could lose three and make a 12-team playoff. So does that take away some of the urgency of the regular season? Well, it might Ohio encourage Ohio State to play even better games, but they're already playing like a big-time non-conference. And the rest of college football, though, is going to get more interesting because many more teams are going to be involved here. So there's still going to be a couple teams at the top, but making the playoff will become a bigger bigger deal for, for teams 4 through 12. That might make them better because it'll be something to clearly strive for that's on the national scene that will draw in more recruits. But I, they are trying to do something about it. They are. And so, I, again, we've talked about this. If a top tier would... I mean, we are breaking into tiers. We are. We are. But the best teams don't want to play 12 slobber knockers a week. They don't want the ultimate parity that the NFL has where you can lose every single week. Like, every week's a toss-up in the NFL to some degree. The college football powers don't want that. They still want three or four or five, like, sure wins a year, whether it's just for their head coach's record, whether it's for bowl consideration, whether, I think more importantly, it's because it's unpaid amateurs still, even with NIL. I mean, still, they're not paid by the team. They're young men, and they probably shouldn't be playing 12 regular season slobber knockers, right? So I do think it's going to get better. And like, for instance, like this is a good time to talk about this because this coming Saturday, Ohio State's off. And look at these great games that we're going to have in college football this weekend. Alabama, Tennessee, who knew that Tennessee was going to be this good? That's going to be a great game. Penn State, Michigan is going to be a great game. TCU, Oklahoma State. Who knew those were going to be the two best teams in the Big 12? That's going to be a great game. And Utah's lost twice, but USC's undefeated. Everyone's been pegging USC at Utah, even with the losses. I think that's still a really interesting game. That's four really good games. Ohio State's not involved. Georgia's not involved. Clemson's not involved. And those are four games that everybody in the country is going to care about. And I think that's a little peak, right, at like what the 12-team playoff might bring to us. Because... All right, Michigan and Penn State are playing, but they still both have to get past Ohio State to get to the playoff. In a 12-team playoff world, Michigan-Penn State is like almost a play-in game for the playoff, that the winner is in really good shape for the playoff, and the loser's not out, but then the loser has a lot more work to do. Like Games like that um, will become even more relevant. So I, I know what you're saying, but I don't think it's that new of an issue. And I think college football is trying to address it. So I do I do think it'll get better. And that I don't think it's a downward trend. There, there have been times the past couple of years where, I mean, the playoff era, right? I mean, in the first seven years of the playoff, the first year, two of Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, no. The big four playoff teams in the first seven years were Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. The first year, two of them made the playoff. And then the next six years, three of those four teams made the playoff every single year. They took three of the four spots every year. There was only one spot up for grabs. And then last year, only Alabama made it. Georgia, Michigan, Cincinnati, all new. So I actually think we're trending toward some better parity or at least new teams or at least expanding that top group from three to 6, 8, 10, 12. And I, so I, I don't think we're at a, we're not at the bottom here. We're kind of bouncing back up. So if you felt that before, I, I actually think it's going to get better. 
All right. Another one about the Ohio State offensive line. A couple questions here. The, some of these were coming in kind of like after the Wisconsin game, but we'll tweak it. From the 419, the offensive line and team blocking in general against Wisconsin was great, but I think it's the best I've seen in the last 20 years. There were gaping holes for the running backs. It's from the 419. And then this is a question along those lines. Uh, a rant, a take, whatever along those lines. It's about the Joe Moore Award. You guys know the Joe Moore Award is for the best offensive line in the country. The Bucks O-line should be on the very short list for the Joe Moore Award. They are eating guys alive. Paris and Dewan are, are both better than Peter Skaronsky, the Northwestern tackle, and both should go higher in the draft, in my opinion. That's from the 7-2-4. So I was trying to think about when, when that first texter said, this is the best offensive line in 20 years. You know, it's hard. I have a terrible memory. I did look back. The 2013 offensive line was really, 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 really good. Ohio State that year uh, led the nation with a 6.8 yards per carry average, which is um, pretty amazing. So that would be uh, a stat that you would point to. And they also, I think, overall were in the top two. I made a lot of notes for this. I, I still use the yellow legal pad. You guys use the, the uh, yellow legal pad ever? I'm a big yellow legal pad guy. Let's see if I can find my notes. I actually can't. Um, they were in the top two in the country in... They were second in total offense. They were first in scoring offense in 2013. So they were second in offensive yards. They were first in points. And they were first in rushing yards per carry. 6.8 yards per carry. They were fifth in rushing yards per game, over 300. 2013, that's the Braxton Miller, Carlos Hyde rushing attack. But it is behind that starting offensive line in 2013 had three super high-level NFL players on that line. And give yourself five seconds to think of them. What? Three, not just starters in the NFL, but big-time dudes who have had long, successful, big-money careers. Do you got them? The left tackle is Jack Muhort. Wound up being, I think, a second-round pick. Kind of had a weird career in Indy. It didn't last real long. Left guard, Andrew Norwell. Was not drafted. Went on. Has made, I think, over $100 million in the NFL, I would think. Because he was an undrafted free agent, was a pro bowler, then signed a huge free agent contract when he got to it. Corey Lindsley was the center. One of the unbelievable underdog stories I've covered at Ohio State. I can't believe how good he is. He's an all-pro center uh, in the NFL. Was with the Packers. Huge deal with the Chargers now. Right guard, Marcus Hall, double bird at Michigan, goes down in history. And the right tackle was young Taylor Decker, who went on to be a first-round left tackle and is a left tackle for the Detroit Lions right now. So that's Norwell, Lindsley, Lindsley, and Decker, who go on to be great. And that year, that was the group that, like, Urban Meyer was telling stories, man, when we got here, this offensive line, they were a mess. They didn't even come to the meetings all the time. And Ed Warner whipped those guys into shape, man. And they were great. And were Braxton Miller and Carlos Hyde a like pretty devastating one-two combo running the ball? Yeah, but it also, you know, I mean, it wasn't, Carlos Hyde's not Zeke, right? I mean, that that line had a lot to do with that. So I think that's a fair standard. You know, Stephen was talking about some stuff with the tackle pairing of Paris and Dewan. Would you go back to 94, super young Orlando Pace and, and Corey Stringer, maybe the last time you had two two tackles like this? But I do think 13 is not a bad comparison for depth of the line. Because like right now, would you say Paris, an NFL guy? Yes. DeWan, an NFL guy? Yes. Donovan Jackson, an NFL guy? Yes. Luke Whipler, an NFL guy? S certainly seems possible, right? I Seems like it. And then Matthew Jones, maybe not. A little bit of that. Often like your second guard's a little more of an underdog guy. But playing well. They're playing really well. So 
to say it's the best in 20 years, like that's a high standard, just made me want to think about the 2013 offensive line. But I think it is potentially as good as an offensive line that I've seen in my 18 years being around Ohio State football. I think I think that's a fair comparison. And I absolutely do think when you get to that Joe Moore award at the end of the year, you know, I think you, you look at Mayan Williams' success, you look at Trayvon Henderson's success, you look at C.J. Stroud's success, like the line has a lot to do with that. And I think people are going to realize it. So I do think this line has a chance to be recognized here. Uh, all right, this one's about announcers from the 843. It's JD in South Carolina. I love Joshua Perry, and he does a great job in the booth. But, Doug, when the heck are we going to get Gus and Joel? So it's been a little bit weird. We haven't had, like, the big main Fox dudes on Ohio State yet. The Iowa game is a big noon Fox game. Big noon Sunday. I'm guessing, I don't know that it's officially out, but I'm I'm pretty sure you're going to get Joel Klatt and Gus Johnson for the Ohio State-Iowa game. And then I think you're going to get Gus and Joel. Well, you know you're going to get Gus and Joel for Michigan. I think you're going to get them for Penn State also. Because that's going to, I think that's going to be a Fox game. Because again, Fox has the first pick. They take Ohio State, Michigan. And it's a little more complicated than that. But they take Ohio State, Michigan. ABC ESPN has the second pick. They usually take Ohio State, Penn State. But this year they took Ohio State, Notre Dame. So that gives the third pick to Fox, which is why I think that Penn State game is going to be in the afternoon, and I think it's going to be on Fox. So you not, have not had Joel Klatt and Gus Johnson yet. I think you're going to get them three times in the final six regular season games, and then you'll get them again in the Big Ten Championship game. So you're going to get your fair share of Joel and Gus. The thing that's interesting is you might not get her Kirk Herbstreet again for like whatever it is, six years. And when he was here for... The Notre Dame game, he was talking about that. And there's one thing to talk about game day, but then there's the other idea that you guys know, since the big new TV contract, ABC ESPN is not going to be involved with the Big Ten on the new TV deal that kicks in in 2023. Kirk Street's not going to be doing Ohio State games. So he did Notre Dame, he did Wisconsin, and then he just did Michigan State on the road. But that might be it, because if Penn State, Michigan, and Iowa are Fox games, I don't think... The number one, I mean, I'm sure the number one, the number one ABC ESPN crew is not going to be on Northwestern, Indiana, or Maryland. The other three Ohio State games, even if one of those games would wind up on ESPN. So I think Herbie's done. That you're going to wind up with with three of Gus and Joel and three of Herbie, but the three Herbie ones are done. The three Fox ones are coming. And that means you're not going to see Kirk Herbstreet other than a playoff game. You're not going to see Kirk Herbstreet do a regular season Ohio State game for like the next five or six years. So that's interesting to think about. Um, you know, everyone makes their takes their turn through the Big Ten Network. We know how this works by now. Sometimes you take a spin on Fox Sports 1. Again, we all know that's changing next year. You guys are going to start hearing Gary Danielson and, and um, Brad Nessler, the CBS guys who do the SEC stuff right now. They're going to become part of your life as an announcing crew on Big Ten games now that the, uh, now that the Big Ten is going to be involved with CBS. You're going to see these. They're going to have to make it an NBC announcing crew. I don't know what that's going to look like. Are they going to have Chris Collinsworth do college games, right? I don't know exactly how that's going to look that NBC is going to be involved with the Big Ten. Maybe it'll be the guys who do some of the Notre Dame stuff. And then you're going to have the Fox stuff. So there's going to be some new crews to get used to next year. But you're going to get some Joel and Gus ahead. I would not worry about that. This is uh, one that, again, I've been saving because um, 
I did take three classes in ling linguistics in college. And I like to say to my wife, whenever like there's a, my wife is a, is a copy editor, is an editor. She is a freelance editor. So she's dealing with words and correcting things all day. And I like to say things to her like, well, you know, I did take linguistics in college because linguistics is the study of language. And every time she hears that, she wants to uh, kick me in the throat. Maybe this is from her. Oh, I've been waiting to send this. I always forget when you ask for rants, but I finally remembered this time around. It's about my number one pet peeve in sports journalism at the moment, and it's when sports writers refer to any team as it instead of they. Ah, it makes me want to hurdle my body out of a moving train. I do not care if it is grammatically correct to refer to a sports team or any of its aspects as it. You could sit me down and provide endless evidence that it's correct, I will, will immediately bristle when someone talks about Ohio State and its chances to win a national title. A group of people is they. A robot is an it. End of discussion. My biggest problem is that it feels like sports writers are trying to make it a thing because no one, else, no one ever says it 100% of the time. They still intersperse it with they, so it's clearly a conscious choice to try and make it the new and cool way of referring to a group in sports. It makes them sound dumb 100% of the time, and I refuse to comply. I'm more on board with an historic than I will ever be with using it. Even worse is itting individual units. Iowa's offense. It didn't move the ball very well. Ah, a group of people is they. Make it stop, Doug. Love the podcast, by the way, from the 740. So I would tell you, like, it's grammar, bro. I don't like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's the style in America. This is where linguistics comes in. Language evolves. Language evolves. And I do like it. And I have... I, it, it, we all know it catches our ear because everyone watches European soccer now, right? Arsenal, you say Arsenal are having a good game. Ohio State is having a good day, game. In British English, they pluralize a team. They call it's Liverpool is plural. Ohio State is singular. So I am totally in favor of... American English evolving to the point where a sports team is always they and never it. But that is not where we are now. And like you can say that you don't like the rules, but like you, we can't just throw out grammar rules like that. They exist. There's AP style. There's like, it's just how the language works. So it's not us trying to be cool, but there is a distinction. Buckeyes is they, Ohio State is it. So when we're writing a story, you always use that interchangeably. Ohio State opened with an eight-play, 78-yard drive that you know gave it a 7-0 lead. Then the Buckeyes came back. When you switch back and forth, you end up switching back and forth between is and are and singular and plural. And it is a pain. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes I'll be writing a story and you, you figure out, oh, I said Ohio State three times in a row. Let me turn one of those to Buckeyes. But then when you turn that to Buckeyes, you're turning it from a singular to a plural. So then you have to change everything around it that applies to that, right? So it is a pain. So if you see it back and forth, it's because we simultaneously are referring to the same thing, which is the Ohio State football team as a singular and as a plural, depending whether we're calling up that group Ohio State or the Buckeyes. But that's the grammar rule. Like we're not, it's... Who, hey, hey, man. Hey, you seem pretty cool. What's your deal? Hey, man, I like to say it to describe a sports team because I just think it's cool. 
Like I, I like I don't. I guess you can be mad, but if the but the thing is, if enough people get mad at language, then language changes. So people like fans can do it. I don't know what would cause it to change. Maybe the fact that that more European sports are front and center. People are watching. What's the fast car thing? F one. I don't know. Turbo car. What's it called? Turbo car. Everybody loves turbo car now. I don't watch turbo car. I don't know what they call the the team of drivers or the you know all the mechanics and stuff from the turbo car stuff. Do they call it? I assume they pluralize it because it's European. So maybe that will cause a change. I'm for the change. I would be in favor of always saying Ohio State are winning. But again, that actually does sound weird to your ear. It would take a while to get used to it, but language changes all the time, which is what my linguistics background has taught me. So it's living. It's it's It reflects what people do, but it's not going to start with us. And like, again, it's not to be cool. It's just the way it is. But maybe we should just uh, all move to Europe and then we can pluralize every sports team. It is a little nuts. I thought it was an interesting thing to like complain about. But because I was actually thinking about it the other day, um, let's do something about receivers. Kevin from Pittsburgh in the seven two four with Jackson Smith and Jigba out and still the great production. Isn't it time to declare the Bucks as having the greatest collection of receivers ever over a two season span in history? So this is possible. The standards for this kind of thing, as everybody knows, is what Bama did a couple years ago, um, and I do think. They had a crossover with four dudes that Ohio State's just not going to match because Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Agbuka didn't really do anything last year while Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson were around, and then they exploded, Marvin did, in the Rose Bowl. And so they had three dudes doing it, but in 2019, Alabama had Devontae Smith, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and Jalen Waddell as their top four guys, and they all played. They had sets where they put all four on the field together. That year, Devontae Smith, 1,256 receiving yards. Jerry Judy, 1,163. Henry Ruggs, 746. Jalen Waddell, 560. So those four guys were there together. And then in 2020, Henry Ruggs was the number 12 pick. Jerry Judy was the number 15 pick. In 2021, Jalen Waddell was the number six pick, and Devontae Smith was the number 10 pick. So those were four guys who actually were on the field together, were in a room together, all contributing, who all then went in the top 15 picks. So Ohio State won't quite match that, but that's the standard. It's just as, a, as another like comparison point, you thought like Clemson had a good run of receivers there for a while, right? It's just... The normal spacing, Clemson, 2013 draft in the first round, DeAndre Hopkins. 2014 draft in the first round, Sammy Watkins. 2017 draft in the first round, Mike Williams. 2020 draft, first pick in the second round, T. Higgins. So that's like, wow, those are four awesome. Hopkins, Watkins, Williams, Higgins, four awesome receivers. But it's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. It's over an eight-year period. It's four basically first-round guys, but it's over eight years. They're not all there at the same time. So the idea that you did have all these Ohio State guys in the same room, in the end, Bama, number 12, number 15 picks in 20, number 6, number 10 picks in 21, and then in 22, they had the Jamison Williams transfer from Ohio State for a year, but he still counts. 
12th pick, and then John Mechie, who had been there for a long time, 44th pick. So they, at receiver, in a three-year period, had five picks in the top 15 of the draft and another guy who went 44th. Could Ohio State match that? Well, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave went 10th and 11th last year. Jackson Smith and Jigba could certainly go in the top 15 picks in the 2023 draft. And then the 2024 draft, Abuka and Harrison could both be first-round guys. So that would match Bama. Bama, again, in a three-year period, had five receivers go in the top 15 picks. In the top half of the first round, Mechie's the sixth guy. Could Ohio State have that with five first-round guys in three years and then maybe Julian Fleming as the sixth guy, who's like a second or third-round pick? That's certainly possible. And then when you look back on, well, the greatest room, the greatest collection, it's going to be hard to be viewed quite the same way that group of four Bama guys was in 2019. But they're in the conversation. I tried to look at LSU. I tried to look at USC like in the 90s and 2000s. And everything else like just doesn't match up. It's like they have a good guy, maybe in back-to-back years. Then there's like a two or three-year gap. And then there's another good guy. It's not on top of each other, around each other, the way these Bama and Ohio State groups are. So, yes, it's in the conversation. And it is incredibly rare. And if Ohio State continues this, which it might, then they could build on that even more. That, that maybe you just get in the habit, well, oh, how many years in a row does Ohio State have a first-round receiver, right? Or, oh, in, a, in an eight-year period, they had 12 guys picked in the draft at receiver, like that kind of thing. That's what you could be building up to here. Uh, but certainly, it's in the conversation for the greatest collection of receiver talent at a college that's been around each other couple more looking ahead to next year. One is from the 3-3-0. I think Ohio State needs to grovel at the feet of Dewan Jones to get him to come back next year. Paris Johnson Jr. has been first-round caliber at left tackle and has gone after this year. Convinced Dewan one more year here will allow him to be a first-round pick, get his body to NFL standards, and give him a year to try and play left tackle and boost his stock. I think if they move him to left tackle and give Josh Fryer or Zen Mahalski the right tackle job, Every other piece of this team next year will be national championship caliber. That's from Zach and Canton. So we were talking with Justin Fry on Tuesday about how the offensive line has played. That is an interesting approach. Give him the lure of left tackle and be a three-year starter in college. We've talked a lot. Justin Fry's talked a lot. Ryan Day's talked a lot. His body's in better shape. He's moving better. But could he get an even, even better shape? Maybe. So that double dip of his body is still rounding into NFL form and will move you to left tackle. That actually is is not an impossible lure, I don't think. Paris is gone. Too good. We had said, oh, beg Paris Johnson Jr. just because he's, he's younger than Dewan. But I actually think that's an interesting case. And I do think that if they get the tackles together, almost everything else falls into place for next year. And just the way things are now, like if if Jones and Johnson are both gone, you've just got some work to do. Whether it's Donovan Jackson kicking out the tackle, whether it's Josh Fryer, whether it's Zen Mahalski, I think there'd be a really good chance that they'd look in the portal for at least one guy there. So I think all of that is real. But I think that DeWan plan is an interesting way to think about it. And then here's something else for next year from the 859. My dad was talking about Kyle McCord 
and how Ohio State will lose at least three games next season. I took that bet with him. Ohio State has not lost three games since the Trestle era, and I don't see that happening next season. He says that McCord looks scared and makes bad decisions when he gets in the game. I wanted to know your thoughts. I don't see McCord losing three games. I think they could be quite good next season. So again, this is the season. 2023 is when we said they could be the greatest team in college football history. By the way, Quinn Ewers would look good in 2023. We were having this conversation. I mean, he just looks good at Texas. It's not a shock, but he's playing and he went there to play. And you understand why it didn't work out here. But if Ohio State could have found a way to have Quinn Ewers tread water this year, they, you know, and maybe if Kyle McCord was at Texas, he'd be doing this right now too. But maybe they'd be really set up in 2023 to be like, hey, third year Quinn Ewers, who was like here as a high school guy for year one, and then was like a really good ready to go back up in year two and then let it rip in year three. That would have been pretty awesome, which is why when we did the 2023 thing initially in an offseason, that's what we were thinking about. Quinn Ewers as the quarterback of that team. But Kyle McCord's a five-star too. They just don't know. And this goes around to the discussion of plan. I did ask Ryan Day. He got asked about it once on Tuesday. Why don't they let McCord do more at the end of the game? And then I asked a follow-up of Ryan Day about that. The two things I wanted to ask about are, do the game reps and blowouts matter to, to that player? Because I do think there's a way you could say, you know what, people overrate the game reps. He's getting live reps in practice. He's he's going ones against ones, or he's running our second-team offense against the number one defense. That's the best training you could get. He's going to get a ton of reps in bowl practice. He's going to get a ton of reps in the spring you know, these blowout reps don't matter that much. There's an opening to say that. That's not what he said. He said they do matter. You know, they. he said these live game reps do matter. So then he had said, you know, you don't want to be disrespectful. I said, why is that front of mind for you? And he said, it's just the way, you know, I kind of was raised. That's just the way it is. I just think about that. But then I was talking to people around the building, and I do think there are some things here, as much as we have talked about this, and I think it's driving some people crazy how much we're talking about why Kyle McCord isn't allowed to throw it a little bit. Their second team offensive line. So he was in last week with the first team offensive line for one series. And I do think Ohio State is interested in getting Kyle McCord reps with the ones. Now, that makes sense to me. Getting him some reps with the ones. But the other thing is, your offensive line is not super deep right now. And so you also want to get your offensive line out of that game from a health standpoint almost as much as you want to get C.J. Stroud out of the game, maybe even more, because nobody on the offensive line is trying to win the Heisman. So I believe in keeping C.J. in the game. And Ryan Day basically said, you know, anytime if Kyle's in the game, you know, end of third quarter, early fourth quarter, let's go. That's fine. And then once you get to the middle of the fourth quarter, that's when Ryan Day, from a respect standpoint, wants to pull it back. But people were, I was just like hearing from people the idea of that second team offensive line, it's it's a little inexperienced and you don't necessarily want to let McCord just like let it rip with that group because maybe that whole second team offense is just not in a place to let it rip collectively. And so you don't want to put people in a position to get hurt. You don't want to put people in a position not to succeed. I do think it takes away a little bit at the end if you throw a pick six, right? Like Braylon Allen, when he had that big run against the second team defense, it was fine. Nobody cared. It doesn't matter. But I think it like leaves a sour taste in Jim Knowles's mouth. So I think when they go out and have a great offensive game, they don't want to like have a fumble with the second team offense at the end of a game because maybe a young guy on the offensive line missed a block and all of a sudden Kyle McCord's back to pass on first down and he doesn't, and he gets sacked, right? So 
Um, and Kyle McCord is not just a guy who's going to like run around like a maniac and make plays with his legs. So I, I think there's a little more to it. The respect thing is there, but I think, yes, they do want McCord to get reps with some first team guys, but they also don't want to leave the whole first team offense in there for like another three series with Kyle McCord because they want to keep the rest of the first team offense healthy. And then once the second team offense is in, especially if there's still ones on the field for the other team, it they don't want it to get loose. So yes, they want McCord. They think the reps from McCord are important, but there are some considerations with the inexperience. You even think about some of like the second team receivers and stuff, right? That haven't done a lot necessarily. It's just, um, it's a little more complicated maybe than I was thinking about it because you can't get a first-team offensive lineman hurt because you're trying to keep the offense running for Kyle McCord, right? And in the end, would he be ready right now if they needed him to like play a whole game? Maybe. And this is just like me talking now, right? Like maybe you don't know for sure, but there is a risk. There's a risk to the first team associated with trying to get Kyle McCord more ready. And then potentially, like you also don't want Kyle McCord to get hurt because maybe you have a second team offensive line in who might let guys leak through and hit the quarterback, especially if there's one still in the game. So anyway, it's not quite as straightforward as, I mean, it, I, don't, I don't think it's like Kyle, Ryan Day doesn't believe in Kyle McCord or they're trying to hold him back. I think they're trying to balance a lot of things here, but I think the thing, and I'm repeating myself, the thing to keep in mind here is they have five legit offensive linemen who are playing really well. They are not deep on the offensive line, and we know that. And most of the time, that's who's blocking for Kyle McCord. So if they're if they're kind of shutting it down, that's factoring in. So are they going to lose three games next year with Kyle McCord? I don't think so, because so much around him is going to be set up for a quarterback to succeed with the receivers, with the running game, with the offensive line, you know, they got to get tackles figured out, with the next step this defense should take, how many of the key defensive guys, almost everybody on the defensive line that matters other than Zach Harrison will be back. You know, they're, they're just going to be better, I think, in a lot of ways. So is there some apprehension? Sure. But I don't think it's a 9-3 and three apprehension with what you're going to do with the other what 21 starting spots um, next year. Young Corners. People want to talk about that. Let's do that. This is from a couple weeks ago, again, from the 614. My rant, I'd keep starting Jair Brown and J.K. Johnson, regardless of Cam Brown and Denzel Burke's status. Um, this is a conversation. And I specifically asked Jim Knowles how you handle changing starters. And the reason I asked about it was what decision may be looming at corner. So he gave a really good explanation of that process. And this is not a surprise, but I say, I try to get a hint of what's the balance between the position coach, you, Jim Knowles, as a head coach of the defense, and then Ryan Day. He said the position coach reps at his position has the loudest voice. Jim Knowles and Ryan Day have opinions. And guess what? They're bosses. They have opinions, but the usually the position coach makes that determination. So if they're going to make a change at corner, if they're going to change the reps at corner, that's really going to be about Tim Walton. And then Jim Knowles said, 
It's about being game ready, which is a phrase that Ryan Day and Jim Knowles both use. And it's one of those things I think, you know, you want guys on both sides of the ball. Hey, how many game ready receivers are there? Brian Hartline was talking about that in the preseason. He said, we have six game ready receivers, seven with Cam Brown. And we've seen that. Jackson Smith and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Buka, Julian Fleming, Xavier Johnson, who has played, and Jaden Ballard. Brian Hartline said, I feel good about all of them. They're all game ready. And Cam Bab, when he's healthy, he's game ready. Right. So once you reach that level, it's almost like another like pulling off another black stripe that you're ready to play in a game that they trust you. Then you can play. Then it's just a matter like they're willing to play you. So then of what Jim Knowles is explaining of all the game ready guys, those reps might change week to week. And I think the example there is Josh Proctor and Lathan Ransom. One week Proctor plays a lot. One week Ransom plays a lot. What's the deal there? Jim Knowles said, not using their names, but said in situations like that, you don't have to really explain much because it's like, hey, everybody's game ready and stuff's going to change week to week, but we're not giving up on the guy who's not playing. It's just how it worked out this week. And he said, guys know that. You don't have to talk that through very much. He said, if it's more of a drastic change, you've got to make sure the player's informed, the parents are informed, everybody's got to be on the same page. And I think the thing here is, if and when Jordan Hancock comes back from his injury, and Ryan Day made it very clear on Tuesday, he said they thought Jordan Hancock was going to compete to start, which is a step further than what he had said before. When they, he kept saying things like, we thought Jordan Hancock would be very involved. Now he said healthy Jordan Hancock was going to compete to start. That means compete, presumably with Cam Brown to start. So now when Jordan Hancock, whenever he gets back, you would think, okay, well, that's where he was then. If he's healthy enough to play and he's game ready, that's where they'll be now. That, I think, is going to be a conversation then. And I think you can extend that conversation to J.K. Johnson, who's played a ton of reps, has played reps both for Burke and Brown in the midst of games when they kind of had some breakdowns and needed a break. But what would that next step be? I think that's a more difficult conversation than what they're doing with Ransom and Proctor right now. So... I think they could get there over the bye week. They said they're going to work on balls in the air. They're going to. That's going to be a great week to drill on that. Plan the ball in the air. Ryan Day said Denzel Burke played better last week, but they know the same thing you know. They see the same thing you see. They've said it multiple weeks now. All those coaches, they're there and they're not making the play. So they're going to drill on that all week. And then I think if somebody's playing the ball in the air. Better than the other guys, I think it could be a change. And the Hancock situation is looming. There's a, I think there's a real chance that Jordan Hancock starts against Michigan. Right? He has to get healthy first. Hasn't played a snap yet this year. He has to get healthy first. But once he's healthy, that's what they think of him. So you might get the young corners you're asking for. I don't know that Jair Brown as a true freshman is going to make that leap. But Johnson and Hancock as second-year guys... I think it's possible, and I think this week will tell us a lot because they're going to drill down on this stuff and see who does it best because they're there and they're just not making the play often enough. All right, last break here. When we come back, I'm going to skip one, but we're going to get to is the Big Ten bad, and then we're going to get to SEC bias, and we'll do that next on Buckeye Talk Rants. Doug Maurice back with you. Try the College Football Survivor Show. We are previewing uh, a lot of the big games this week. Penn State, Michigan discussed on there, Tennessee, Alabama. We had a really good Heisman conversation on our show for Apple Podcast subscribers. You guys can subscribe to the College Football Survivor Show to get a bonus episode every week. You get four a month. It's $2.99 for the month. So we do one show a week on the College Football Survivor Show, Shahanjay Haraja and I. 
that's free, that's on every podcast platform, and we do a second bonus episode that is only available on Apple Podcasts, and I know not everybody gets that or uses that or has access to it, and I'm a little frustrated by that. We would like to expand that bonus offering so you could pay for it another way, but we're still working through that. But a lot of people can get Apple Podcasts, so it's $2.99 a month. You get that whole bonus episode. We were like an hour 20 on the Heisman race. A lot of C.J. Stroud conversation within that, but my eyes were opened a little bit doing some research on it. Um, how other quarterbacks on playoff contenders fit into that mix. Are there really any guys who aren't quarterbacks on playoff contenders who belong in that Heisman conversation? We call it about a 10-man race in the end. And certainly CJ is at the front of that, which everybody, I mean, we, we can all see that. But uh, I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good conversation. Shahan and I disagreed a little bit. So if you've never tried the College Football Survivor Show, um, this might be a good week to do it because I think, I think Ohio State fans would enjoy sort of that national perspective on that Heisman discussion, and that's on the Apple Show this week. All right, let's talk about the Big Ten. From the 3-3-0, thanks to the playoff, we, are no, we no longer rely on the rest of the Big Ten providing a decent schedule strength to improve Ohio State's odds of making a championship game. So I've largely stopped rooting for other Big Ten teams to win their non-conference games. But come on, guys, have some self-respect. Um, this is Luke in the 3-3-0. Outside of Ohio State, no Big Ten teams have had any real postseason success this century. What are they doing with the tens of millions of dollars Ohio State is good enough to provide them? Be better. Doesn't like the scheduling. Doesn't like the fact that when they do play out of conference, they lose. From the 5-1-3, should we be on alert for the Big Ten being the worst it's been in years? Obviously, there are three teams at the top that appear to be legitimate. Playoff contenders, Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, but the rest appear to be average or just downright terrible. So this is a major conversation about the West. Um, I thought Illinois might be good. I did pick Wisconsin to win the West, but I picked Illinois to tie for second. And then when we had to rank, like, well, who's just second on, in our preseason poll? I put Illinois second. I put Iowa last. And that was rare. And I, I, I'm proud of that. I'm not proud of necessarily the Wisconsin pick, though they still might win it. But the question here is, the one way I try to look at it right now is who is the fourth best team in every power conference? And that's certainly not a scientific way to judge the strength of a conference. But we're looking at, I think the top three of the Big Ten is as good as anybody. Right? I mean, I think, and they would be, I think that top three is better than Every conference, maybe other than the SEC. If the, if the SEC top three is Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, I guess I would take that over Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, just because you take the Georgia-Alabama combo. But I think in that regard, the, the Big Ten second. But let's talk about the fourth best team. Fourth best team in the ACC is probably either 5-1 and one North Carolina or 5-1 and one Wake Forest. Um, both like behind Clemson and NC State would be the top two. One of those is third, so one of them is fourth. Really excellent quarterbacks for both those teams, right? Drake May at UNC is a big-time recruit. He's having a great year. And Sam Hartman at Wake Forest was dropping dimes on Clemson and is, is awesome also. And, and the ACC just has a higher level of quarterback play. I think that fourth-best team in the ACC is better than the fourth-best team in the Big Ten. Big 12, fourth-best teams, probably the 5-1 Kansas State or 4-2 and two Texas. If Oklahoma State and TCU are the two best teams, you know, Baylor's still pretty decent. Um, we'll, uh, Oklahoma does not look good this year. 
Four and two Texas is legit. Like if that's the fourth best team, and then Kansas State, you know, steamrolled Oklahoma. They have a weird loss to Tulane. The, the hard thing about Kansas State is Adrian Martinez, the former Nebraska guy, is their quarter is their quarterback. So if you have like Big Ten memories of him, and it's like what he's making K State go, but like Deuce Vaughn's a really good running back. They're a good program. Um, probably Texas is third because they lost two games while Quinn Ewers was hurt. They're probably third. It probably is K-State and something like this, but I still think K-State is probably better than the fourth best team in the Big Ten. Uh, Pac-12. If you put USC uh, and UCLA, both of whom were undefeated at the top and both of whom were in the Pac-12 for now before they joined the Big Ten in 2024, the fourth best team is either 5-1 Oregon or 4-2 Utah, and both of them are better than the fourth best team in the Big Ten. SEC, the fourth best team, is probably undefeated Ole Miss. They beat Kentucky, although Kentucky kind of outplayed them that day. We already said the top three in the SEC, Old Miss, they'd be the fourth best team in the Big Ten. Because the fourth best team in the Big Ten right now, it's either Maryland or whoever the best team in the West is. And who knows who the best team in the West is? Is it Minnesota? Is it Illinois? Is it Purdue on a good day? I don't know. But when Wisconsin's bad, when Iowa's bad, when Nebraska hasn't gotten it together, when Northwestern, who filled the gap for a couple years, is bad... There's a huge opening there. So I, there was a time when the Big Ten like wasn't spending on coaches and didn't have very good coaches, but I think they've done that, right? I mean, they, they Illinois brought Brett, Brett Bielema back, you know, when P.J. Fleck was a hot candidate in the, in the MAC, Minnesota got him. Um, Jeff Brom at Purdue, they're, they're paying that guy. So they do need to be better. They gotta recruit quarterbacks. They gotta recruit quarterbacks. That's the number one thing that is holding this league back. And when you have the ACC, if the ACC, if Wake Forest and Virginia and North Carolina State and North Carolina can have really good quarterbacks, then the Big Ten should be able to have it too. And they just have to decide to do it. They have to emphasize it. We can't live in a world anymore where everybody in the Big Ten wants to have a top 10 defense and a bottom 10 offense. It's no way to live, man. Iowa is ruining this. So they have to get offensive minds. It doesn't have to be the head coach, but they have to get real offensive minds that can develop real quarterbacks. Penn State's trying to do that now with Drew Allers, making a difference. Guess what? J.J. McCarthy at Michigan's making a difference, right? Rutgers is trying to do it with Gavin Winsett, right? They're trying. Maryland getting... Talia Tonga-Vailoa to transfer, that mattered. Tanner Morgan's playing really well for Minnesota. Aiden O'Connell's playing well for Purdue. That matters. Guess what? The best teams have good quarterbacks. And Graham Mertz actually played well last week after playing terrible against Ohio State. So you have to develop quarterbacks. It's not the coaches, but the coaches have to decide to do it. And it's gone on far too long. And not everybody's going to be Ryan Day and C.J. Stroud, but figure it out. Some people, we need more schools in the Big Ten going back to a dual threat kind of quarterback that can get Daquan Finn, that can get out of trouble if your offense isn't perfect, It can make plays with his feet and also diagnose defenses and make throws down the field and be accurate. Daquan Finn should be in the Big Ten. So they have to develop quarterbacks. That's where it starts. That's where the game is right now. And too many, it's mostly Kirk Ferentz, honestly. Too many Big Ten teams are still trying to. Do it with defense and zero offense. So that's what's making the Big Ten bad right now. Baylor made a change of quarterback. They went to Blake Shapin. Spencer Sanders is playing great for Oklahoma State right now. Guess what? 
Oregon went and got Bo Nix as a transfer. He's really hot and cold, but he's making some things happen. Um, Cam Rising, a transfer from Texas, is at Utah. He turned Utah around a year ago. The quarterbacks matter, and that is where the Big Ten still falls short. And I know not everyone in the Big Ten is going to be Lincoln Riley, but if the ACC can do it, then the Big Ten can do it. So go do it. This is ridiculous, Brian Ferentz. It's embarrassing. Quarterback play matters. It's not 2004. Quarterback play matters. And guess what? When Iowa was really good in 2002, they had a good quarterback. So, like, figure it out, man. God. All right, last thing about SEC bias. I've been saving up all of these for weeks because we got a lot of them because people uh, have strong opinions about this, which is nothing new. This is Andy in the 330. My rant is I hate SEC bias. Everyone thinks they are football gods, but they play nothing but high school teams to start the year and enter into conference play undefeated. Then they just say they beat up each on each other. It's not hard to be 4-0 playing FBS teams. It's a scam. No one blinks when the SEC does it, but if Ohio State's non-conference teams were that weak, they wouldn't be ranked during the top 25. The SEC strength of schedule is a sham of undefeated teams bolstering each other by playing nobody at the beginning of the season. We have talked in the past about Nick Saban's uh, diabolical scheduling genius, but again, that's changing. So Bama's starting to play real teams in the non-conference, including Notre Dame, including Wisconsin. Wisconsin's soon. Ohio State, we know it's 27 and 28 for Ohio State. So that's going to change. But they have played the game very, very well. Now, Georgia went and blew the doors off Oregon, but it's like a neutral site game in Atlanta. Again, Georgia didn't go to Seattle to play Oregon. Right. So um, they've been really good with those neutral site games that are always in the South. It can feel it feels like an SEC home game, but they've been really you, you can't take Georgia played Clemson last year to open the season and played Oregon this year. So like that part of it, like that's not true. Those were that's about as good as you can get. Um, but Bama has been really smart with how they've done the scheduling thing over the years. But I do think there's something to the idea over the years that, again, when two teams play in the SEC, the team that loses is like, oh, it's like it's a great win for the team that wins and a great loss for the team that loses. And sometimes that doesn't translate to other conferences. Another SEC bias from the 330. Oh, no, it's the same one. Um, I was like, oh, this guy really hates SEC bias. Uh, but it's it's the same. Uh, it's the same text uh, twice. So sorry about that. This is on the same idea, though. It's Trey from Raleigh. I know rankings don't mean much and at the end of the year, everything will get sorted out. But I'm sick and tired of Alabama getting the benefit of the doubt. If you actually watch the games, you know that Georgia and Ohio State are in the league of their own right now and should be talked about in that light. Buckeye Talk does a good job of this, but other national media does not. So again, that was a couple weeks ago. I have found it odd that as Bama and Georgia have alternately alternate, alternated struggling, they've passed the number one ranking back and forth, but it's never been Ohio State. And I'm not sure why. I actually don't know why that is, especially for Bama. Bama's three now. But Bama doesn't have a win to stand on the way Georgia has a blowout of Oregon to stand on. So even, okay, Georgia's kind of struggled with um, Kent State and whoever else they struggled with the other week. But um, you can point to Oregon. Alabama doesn't have that. So I I found it odd. And to me, it is a little bit of of a, I think SEC bias is fine to call that there, that that Bama and Georgia have both been number one, but Ohio State has not, um, is odd to me. From the 419, 
Living in SEC country is exhausting. I just finished listening to a Vanderbilt fan talking about how great the SEC is and how much better football is in the South. The SEC has a better top tier of their conference, but college football is better in the North. I have three reasons. The first two, I believe. The last one is the real reason. One, the SEC has three real teams in any given year. Bama, Georgia, and whoever uh, it is this year, it appears to be Tennessee. While the Big Ten has three consistent teams, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State, plus whoever jumps up in the West. Two, our game day experiences are better. I went to a game in Athens and game day experiences sucked compared to Ohio State. I've also been to Bama and Auburn. They're fun, but nothing compared to the festivities around the shoe. Three, lastly, we actually like our football team. Nebraska, Iowa, Northwestern, and Rutgers are consistently producing terrible football products, but their fans are there at games and their fans root for them. It'll be a cold day in heck when you show up to Camp Randall and hear chants of big as Ohio State scores shown on the scoreboard. I know Auburn fans who hate Bama and Georgia but they gloat about championships the past two years. Not a single person in the Big Ten cares about Ohio State winning a championship. But these weak-bellied rebels spend their falls sucking on ooh, sucking on Sabins and Kirby's teats, and they call themselves football fans. College football is better in the North because we actually like our own teams. Um, so that was a good rant, right? Aren't you glad I saved that? Uh, about the SEC. A couple more about the SEC, and then we'll have a final SEC conversation here. Hey, Doug, this is Jason from Aurora, Ohio. Just back from Knoxville to visit my daughter, who's a freshman at Tennessee. Very cool. And I attended the Tennessee-Florida game. Had a great time attending my first all-SEC matchup. A couple of rants observations. One, the tailgating scene was not better than Ohio State. I feel like Ohio State has so many traditions that people downplay how good the tailgating is. Tennessee was fine, and the Vol Walk was really cool, as was the Vol Navy, but nothing stood out as better than Ohio State, despite what the lists say. Two, the lack of advertising during the game was noticeable and much more enjoyable. I'm sure Tennessee is missing out on some dollars, but not having to sit through live commercials and sponsors, every commercial break was much better. Maybe Ohio State can don't it, tone it down a bit. Three, there was zero complaining about the refs or the play calling that I heard. I was amazed. Not sure if it's because Tennessee fans have low expectations, are generally nicer than Northern fans, or not as knowledgeable, or more drunk, but it stood out to me. This is more of an off-season pot idea, but I'd be interested in fan experiences in other stadiums and how they compare to Ohio State. Nothing compares to Tabittle. My daughter's roommate is in the Tennessee band, and even she admitted Ohio State was on another level. Thanks for reading, Jason and Aurora. That's really good. I think that stuff is interesting. We should do that in the off-season. Your experiences at other games, because I don't think I've ever attended a game in an SEC stadium. I went and did a Freddie Kitchen story for us when he got hired by the Browns, and I went like to the restaurant next to um, Bryant-Denny Stadium, or is it Denny Bryant? No, it's Bryant-Denny Stadium at Alabama, but I've never been inside for a game, never been to Georgia or LSU or Tennessee or anywhere else. I just, I, I've never done it. I've been to an SEC basketball game because I went to the Ohio State-Florida game when uh, Odin and Conley played Noah and Horford and those guys in the regular season. Um, but I don't have a context there. So I'm really curious to hear stuff like that. Um, last thing here. From the 801, SEC fans, they are the most annoying and biased, uneducated fans on the planet. And I hear that I hear this everywhere around the country. Is it an inferiority complex? In general, do they have... Oh, my. Why do they have short man syndrome? So, okay. I understand. Like you're, This is why I do think it's kind of interesting that the sport to me is is still on its way to breaking into two groups. And I don't think it's going to be one top tier. I think it's going to be more like a Southern conference and a Northern conference. 
And then you can get into some cultural geographic stuff that I think will only enhance the rivalries. And again, will will you ever be chanting like big, go Big Ten? Maybe not, but I, I would be curious how that would work out if we really wind up with, you know, two 24-team conferences. I do think one of the things that's interesting, I, I do think at times Ohio State has some things almost more in common with SEC schools and with other Big Ten schools, because as much as the one text are saying like, hey, it's great, Rutgers fans and Northwestern fans and Indiana fans, they don't ever give up on their team even when they stink. I mean, the Ohio State game experience is much more like the good big stadiums and good big fan bases in the SEC than it is going to Maryland or Rutgers or Indiana or Northwestern, right? I mean, there are a lot of of similarities, I think, between going to a Tennessee game and an Ohio State game, even though the one texture just kind of laid out the differences. So Ohio State just straddles this world that they are the leader of the North, but they have kind of a lot in common with the South, which is probably only amps up the hatred a little bit, right? Because it's not completely foreign. It's just maybe almost like a funhouse mirror of your own experience. It's not completely different, but it's a twist on what you're used to. So I do think in terms of how the SEC is viewed, in the end, it's not really the SEC. It's Bama. Take out Bama, and the SEC kind of is much more normal compared to everybody else. But the entire league has been able to absorb Bama's greatness. That if you lose to Bama, it doesn't count against you as much. And if you somehow beat Bama, it's a miracle, and you get triple bonus points for that. And that doesn't apply anywhere else. But it's earned. Like Saban's earned it. Saban's the greatest coach in college football history. They recruit at the highest level. We just all have to be smarter in not applying the Bama context to everybody else in their conference. Because it's not really that the SEC is better. It's that Bama is better and happens to be in the SEC. So if you're going ones versus ones, Bama's going to beat everybody else. But think about if you took out Bama and now you're doing Georgia versus Ohio State. And now you're doing who's the second best program in the SEC, LSU? If you take out Bama, Georgia's second. All right, the next, if, LSU, if Georgia's one, is LSU two? Well, now it's LSU-Michigan. Who do you take? Is Florida two? Who's consistently would be the two if you took out Bama? Michigan can stack up. Who's consistently the three? Penn State can stack up. Who's consistently the four? Wisconsin can stack up. Just take out Bama. Now, of course, you can't. But when you are evaluating everything that other SEC teams are doing, you should. You should try to think of it that way. Because Bama being good really has nothing to do with how you view Georgia or LSU or Florida or Tennessee. Now, Tennessee's going to play Bama this week. And if Tennessee beats Bama, and I think they might, they're going to get a ton of credit for it. Bama actually has some serious flaws. But Tennessee is going to get credit for beating the dynasty, not just the team. So that I do think is real, and it's different than any other program in any other conference in the country, but I just think it's because Bama has earned it and everybody's glommed on. So if Bama gets benefit of the doubt when Bama gets the four seed ahead of Ohio State in 2018, like I think I think you can at least understand why that is because it's Bama. If there's some other SEC team that is ranked too high or viewed um, – too favorably, that probably isn't right. So that's where I think that bias argument breaks down. The bias for Bama is real, but earned. 
And I think the, the bias for everybody else in the SEC is often real and actually not that earned. Okay. That's the off week rant podcast. We'll see you back for midseason awards, Nathan Steven, and we're going to have our guest who won our college, the NCAA tournament bracket that we did. And we said one of the things you win is getting to be on the show. We're finally going to have him on. It's been however many months. He's going to be on with us for the midseason awards. We have votes from the texters for that. We're going to run through offensive player of the year for Ohio State, defensive player of the year, biggest surprises on both sides of the ball, best position coach so far. We'll make outrageous predictions for the rest of the year, all that kind of stuff. It'll be fun. We'll see you then. In the meantime, read Cleveland.com slash OSU. Try the text if you'd like. Try the College Football Survivor Show. I think you'll enjoy it this week. If you don't want to do the Apple Podcast thing, listen to the free one. I'll break down all these games that you guys will have time to watch this weekend while Ohio State is off. And as always, thank you so much for making Buckeye Talk and Buckeye Talk Rants part of your week. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.